Well, good morning, fellowship. This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And this is a very familiar passage, a very familiar story, one that's taught many times in uh, Sunday school. And this morning we're going to look at it afresh. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. It says this, And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all, of you, all you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around to his disciples and said, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. There are various responses to the gospel message. At times, the response is anger. People don't like it when God's gospel is preached, and they respond by rejecting the message and persecuting God's messenger. At other times, the response is mockery. They make fun of the message and belittle the messengers. Sometimes, the response is confusion. Maybe they misunderstand the message. They fail to focus on what is important about the message and are drawn to the Christian faith for the wrong reasons and therefore believe the wrong things. Some show an interest in the gospel, but then they don't respond in one way or another for one reason or another. This morning, we're going to see interest in the gospel, but a rejection of the gospel based on three obstacles to the gospel. Rejection based upon pride, selfishness, and sinful humanity. Now, this morning, we're looking at an encounter that Jesus has with a certain young man. Back in verse 17, it says, and, he, and as he was setting out on his journey, we enter the ministry of Jesus as he's headed to the cross, to his final task, to die a sinner's death on a cross. He's on his way for the last time to Jerusalem to lay his life down. Jesus, he's on the east side of the Jordan River down in the south in an area called Perea. And so in the last days as he's ministering in this area, he, he encounters this rich young ruler. Now, all the Gospels or all the Synoptic Gospels record this incident and this encounter. And, and through each one, we learn different details about this young man. We learn that he was young, that he was rich, he owned a lot of property. And Luke 18 tells us that he was a ruler. And this most likely meant that he was a ruler of a local synagogue. And so here we have the rich young ruler who 
has a position of authority, a position of respect in his community, and, and people know who he is, and he's a successful young man. But look in verse 17. A man ran up and knelt before him. So here, this rich young ruler runs up and kneels before Jesus. Now, in these days, it was considered inappropriate for men of status and wealth to run. And what's worse, and what's even more degrading, is, is to kneel before someone, to, to bow, in essence, before someone. Yet here we have this rich ruler doing exactly that, apparently casting off his pride and ego to throw himself at the feet of Jesus. He seems to be genuine, and he's certainly eager to meet with this famous teacher, to have some questions answered. Then he blurts out what's on his heart and most certainly has been the consuming focus of his life. Good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as we look at this, eternal life equals salvation. What this young man is looking for is salvation. He's looking to be welcomed into the kingdom of God and seeking what he must do in order to gain eternal life, to, to earn salvation or to gain salvation. So if we're honest, this is a good question to ask, isn't it? And notice Jesus doesn't rebuke the question as he has in other encounters and other times he substitutes a question with another question and sometimes changes the subject. But he doesn't do that here. He accepts it as a perfectly good question. And notice that while it was a good question, it wasn't a unique question. It's a question that many were asking during this time. And it's not the only time this question has been asked. The lawyer asked this question in Luke 13. And in the book of Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching and explained to the Jews and in his audience how they've rejected the Messiah and, and how they've handed him over to the Romans to be killed. And after sharing that, we're told in Acts 2.37 that they were cut to the heart by that message. And they asked, what shall we do? And then keep going in the book of Acts to Acts 16. Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi. And after an earthquake, the cell doors are thrown open and the prisoners have the chance to escape. And so the jailer is about to take his life. But then Paul stops him and lets him know no prisoners have escaped. And he falls at their feet. And what does he ask? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So we find here that this question was a question that Jews and Gentiles alike were concerned with. They were concerned about how a person can be right with God, how one could be welcomed into the kingdom of God, and how a person can inherit eternal life. They were concerned about how they could stand before God, how they could be forgiven of sin. And it wasn't just a question that people wrestled with in the first century but a question people continued to struggle with throughout Christian history and even into the present. Remember Martin Luther? He struggled with this very question. He knew he was a sinner. He recognized his absolute worthlessness before God and his unworthiness to stand before God, and he wrestled with how a sinful person could be forgiven by a holy God. It is an important question, isn't it? Not just then, but today. It's the most important question in life. Now today, people have 
substituted that question with other questions, and they're preoccupied with other concerns in their life at many times today. Questions like, where will I go to school? Who will I marry? What will my career be? Will I have children? And, and where am I going to live? Now, all these are important concerns and good questions to ask, but they pale in comparison to this question. The question, what must I do to be saved? Have you answered that question? Are you even asking that question? And Christians, are, are you answering that question for other people? Because we should be. As Christians, we have the answer to the question of what must I do to be saved? And, and we need to be sharing that answer with others and, and sh sharing with them, showing them the way to inherit eternal life. Well, Jesus answers the young man's question, but not in the way we might expect. He answers the question with a question. And in many ways, this rich young ruler represents a, a great many religious seekers in our world today. As we see with this man, there are some in churches today who are perhaps sincerely and earnestly seeking out how they can grab a hold of salvation. They fill church seats, try to do everything they think they need to in order to gain salvation. They certainly look the part and even play the part of an honest God-seeker. Yet there's one thing they, like this young man, still lack. This account shows us how Jesus deals with prideful, selfish, and religious seekers. So the central point of this entire encounter is that there's nothing a sinner can do, regardless of their station in life, to inherit eternal life. Nothing a sinner can do, regardless of who they are, what their paycheck looks like, that they can do to inherit eternal life. So we're going to discover three obstacles that this man faced and many of us face to eternal life. The first obstacle we come to is his pride. It's the pride of the rich young ruler. Look at Jesus' response in verse 18. He says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Okay, so not exactly where I would have gone if someone came up to me and asked me this question. Um, but obviously, our Lord knows better. And as usual, he cuts through all the rhetoric to get to the heart of the matter, and really to the heart of this young man. The first sign of a problem in the man's seemingly heartfelt inquiry is his use of the word good. Maybe he just simply meant it as a compliment to Jesus to, to maybe flatter him a little bit. But it betrays a total misunderstanding of what goodness really means. See, just as the whole world throughout all of history had misunderstood and applied the concept of good, so does this young man. See, there's no indication that he knew or believed that Jesus was God. And to the Jews, good was only applied to God. And so here he comes to what he believes, or who he believes, is a good teacher, and, and even perhaps a prophet of God, and calls him good. But Jesus quickly reminds him that there is none who is good except God alone. So when we see this, and when we understand that this young man didn't understand what goodness was, we can understand why Jesus answered the way he did. Because this young man only, not only ascribed goodness to Jesus, but as we'll see, he believed he is good, and that what he had done in his life was good. Jesus saw the first obstacle in this man's path was his pride. 
even though he gave the appearance of humility and brokenness by kneeling before the master, his words revealed the true pride and arrogance in his heart. To him, moral goodness was a matter of doing good things, doing the right things, a matter of conforming to, to some rules. He assumed there was something he could do to earn eternal life, something he could do to be saved. But Jesus goes on in verse 19 and tells him, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Yet this doesn't even trip the young man up. Without flinching, he asserts that I've kept all these from my youth. Well, apparently, he never heard Jesus' sermon on the mount about what law-keeping really looks like. He hadn't outwardly conformed to the letter of the law, supposedly keeping every commandment religiously. But as Jesus makes clear in his Sermon on the Mount, outward conformity is not enough. Even the evil thoughts we dwell on and the secret sins in our hearts make us guilty before God. Ironically, though, this young man believed he had kept all the commandments that Jesus had quoted. It was the ones that Jesus did not mention that were the most trouble for him. He quote, Jesus quotes commandments that have to do with how we relate to one, each, one another and how we treat one another. But he leaves out the ones concerning God and how we relate to God. Though he seemed to live a moral life and keep peace with those around him, this man was guilty of breaking the greatest command, namely to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because instead of loving God, he loved something else. Instead of worshiping God, he had another God. He believes that he kept the law sufficiently since he was a boy. Sure, he may not have been perfect and um, done everything right, but he, had, he always had good intentions, right? He did the best that he could. Many today think that is enough for them. They think, I'll try my best, and, and surely that'll count for something. Surely that'll be enough for God to do the best that I can with what I'm given. But God's clear in his word that that counts for nothing. The best we have to offer counts for nothing. What about you? Do you believe that if you just do enough good things and try your hardest, that, that surely your, your bad deeds or your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds and that'll be enough for you to earn God's forgiveness? Or have you realized that living a moral life, simply doing good things, and the best you can is simply not enough to gain salvation. Maybe the pride in your accomplishments and the success you've experienced in life keeps you from recognizing that there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. Your own pride could be an obstacle keeping you from salvation like it was for this young man. I urge you to, to cast that aside. Lay down your pride and trust fully in Christ something the rich young ruler was unable to do. But maybe it was the success in this young man's life that brought him to believe that he was on the right path. Maybe it was the experience he had, or the success he's had that led him to believe he was in God's favor. I mean, to everyone around him, he appeared to, to have it all going on, right? He, he seemed to have everything together. He was young, successful in his career, rich, respected by his peers and even those older than him. And from the world's perspective, he had it all together. 
So this must mean God was happy with them, right? No, far from it. As many did in his day, he equated his success in life with God's approval. He thought of himself as morally good and came to Jesus to see what he could add to his qualifications. This young man had bought into the idea that following God would bring material wealth. Love God, get rich. And it's a lie so many people fall for today. They think because they have material wealth and prosperity that God must be happy with them. And yet that very blessing many times may be a curse. For like the rich young ruler, his love of money trapped him in his sin. So too many people today become ensnared by the love of money and pride in their accomplishments, and they miss out on salvation. Pride's the first obstacle we see in this young man's life. And the second one we see is the selfishness of the rich young ruler. Look in verse 21. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. Let's stop there for a moment. Jesus looks at him and loves him. The phrase is a most beautiful display of the compassion, the heart of our Lord. It reveals how he views this sinner. As Jesus exposes the heart of this prideful, selfish sinner, his own heart is stirred in love. Now, Jesus has every right to rebuke this young man. Right? For his impertinence in thinking that he could be good enough to earn God's salvation. That he could do enough to be forgiven by God. Yet he looked at him and he loved him. Christians, it's so very tempting to look at people who have great wealth and to condemn them for their wealth. We may look at those who are rich and envy them for their money. Hate them for their privileges or look down on them for their smugness. But if we do that, we miss the heart of our Savior. Now, there, there's always going to be someone richer than you, always going to be someone who has more money than you. And, and while I don't feel like I'm wealthy by any means, there, there's someone who would look at my life and think, he's got it all together. He's got everything you could want. And, and when I look at people who have wealth, I'm tempted to, to feel that way, to feel a, sen a sense of resentment towards them. You know, well, why do they have all that stuff in, and, and I don't? Why, why can they live the life they're living and be blessed, or so I think, the way they are? And yet, here I am, what I think is poverty. But doing that, I miss the heart of our Savior and his love and compassion that he has for people. We're called to love them like Jesus did. Not to look at them in condescension or jealousy, but with compassion and gentleness. Because as this man was, they too may be trapped in pride and selfishness. The very thing that we may despise them for may be the very thing that hinders them from receiving salvation. We should recognize them as fellow sinners who need the gospel as much as we do ourselves. Look with me again in verse 21. Jesus goes on to tell this young man what he must do. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. On the surface, it's like, wait a minute. I, I thought you can't earn your salvation. Why is Jesus telling him he has to, to keep these commandments 
and to go and do this thing in order to earn salvation. But what Jesus is doing is revealing to this man what is of first importance in his life, what's most valuable to him. Jesus is revealing what is in this man's heart. Only repentance and faith, by grace through faith, are we saved. But what Jesus saw was a deep problem in this man's heart. Not something that giving away his wealth would fix, but the fact that he had a love for his wealth, that he loved more than he loved God. But anyone looking at him would assume that pleasing God was what was most important to him. After all, he devoted all his time and energy to serving God and teaching others, right? He attended church regularly. He gave his tithes, and, and he helped out the poor. He even went to school to study the scriptures. Yet Jesus wasn't fooled by this performance. He saw through it all and went straight to the heart of the matter. The young man loved himself more than he loved God and others. What was truly most important to him was him. You see, God did not have the place of first importance in his heart. For all the religious fervor and zeal that this man showed, it was his own satisfaction, his own well-being that was most important to him. And it was demonstrated in his response to Jesus' invitation to follow him. He went away disheartened. Now, of all the encounters we have uh, when people come to Jesus, th this is the only recorded instance where a man walks away disheartened and leaves Jesus sad and as lost as he was before he came. And yet Jesus simply lets him walk away. He was not willing to let go of what was most important to him. The way of eternal life, it was laid plain before him. The Savior himself extended an open hand to lead the sinner to salvation. Yet he rejects it. Unwilling to lay down his pride and selfishness, he missed it. John MacArthur has said, he wanted eternal life only as an add-on to what he already possessed. He loved himself, not God. He loved earth and not heaven. He loved the material, not the spiritual. This is the reality for so many people today, and perhaps even people sitting in this very room. The life of this man mirrors that of many people who claim to be followers of Jesus. You see, there's people who are religiously piously religious, right? They, like the rich young ruler, believe they've lived pretty good lives. I mean, they, it's not like they've murdered anyone, and, and they pay their taxes usually, and, and they give money to the church, right? They, they know who Jesus is and strive to do the things they're supposed to. They even affirm every core doctrine of the Christian faith. Yet there's something missing. There's something that's not quite there, Deep in their hearts, under the facade of carefully crafted religion, the love of God does not reign supreme. Ultimately, they trust in their own perceived goodness to earn favor with God and cling to their material resources as their security. They possess the appearance of a faithful follower of Jesus, yet they themselves are possessed by pride and selfishness. And it's a very dangerous place to be. But fellowship, if we're not careful to examine our hearts and, and to look at what drives us and what motivates us and what's truly important to us, if we're not careful, that may be true of us.
Do you trust in anything or anyone other than Christ for your eternal security? Do you, if even in some small way, trust that your own perceived goodness would be enough to earn you God's favor? Let me tell you that no amount of goodness in the human heart will make up for the evil that infects it. So that brings us to the third obstacle of eternal life to this rich young ruler. His pride, his selfishness, and his existence as a sinful human being. A sinful human. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've grown up in church and you've heard this story, you've heard it in Sunday school and and heard sermons about it, um, I can't tell you how many times I heard that uh, what Jesus is talking about here, this whole business with the eye of the needle and the camel, all that kind of stuff. Well, you see, there was this gate. It was a really small gate, kind of short, um, uh, in Jerusalem, and people would want to take their camels through it. Merchants would bring their camels fully loaded and, and... want to go through this gate. Well, what they'd have to do is get the camel to kneel down and kind of just squeeze him through this narrow gate. And you see, so it's difficult for a rich person to be saved. But that's completely wrong. Because while that is difficult, maybe near impossible, but very difficult, when Jesus says that it is impossible, he's using this as an illustration of something that is truly impossible. He's talking about a little literal camel going through the literal eye of a needle, which is impossible. And, and, and so this is what Jesus means. That was his intention. And, and all this nonsense about this gate and, and a camel kneeling, that has nothing to do with what Jesus was truly saying here. But on the surface, this encounter seemed like the perfect opportunity to give a full gospel presentation, right? It's not like every day you just get get set up so perfectly, uh, someone come run up to you and say, what must I do to be saved? I don't know about you, but I've never had someone run up and say, good sir, what must I do to be saved? I just, it doesn't happen like that all the time. But, but here we have this man who, who seems sincere and genuine and earnest in seeking how he can be saved. And most of us, if we were asked it in this way, would be like, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. But that's not where Jesus goes. That's not how he responds. He let the man walk away sad. You almost feel like, come on, Jesus, you had this one in the bag. You know, he was right there. And he would have made a great addition to to your followers. I mean, you've got this ragtag bunch of uh, nobodies who keep tripping over themselves trying to figure out who gets to be the best in the kingdom. And and here you have this man kneeling in front of you. And and imagine what good he could do with all the money he's got and the influence he got. He could be a great addition. Yet Jesus sees something deeper here. He sees through the act. And he sees right into the man's heart to his greatest need. His heart needs to change. Because God requires something more than reverence for Jesus as a good teacher and earnest attempts to obey God's command. Because the gospel is more than just simply believe in Jesus. There's two essential elements to the gospel. And what Jesus is doing is getting to this first element. Two elements of the gospel are repent and believe. 
And no gospel call is complete without these. And this was even the focus of Jesus' preaching. I mean, he opens his public ministry with the message, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And John, in his proclamation, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so what Jesus was doing was leading this man to see his need to repent of his pride and selfishness. And what he does is reveal to this man that his greatest need was not to do something to earn salvation, but to recognize that there was nothing he could ever do to earn it. It was a challenge to cast aside his pride and selfishness and recognize that as a sinful human being, it is impossible to be saved. Therefore, Jesus tells his disciples, it is impossible with man. And so this is true today. Maybe it's not specifically pride or selfishness that keeps us from salvation, but the simple fact that we are sinful humans. Every single one of us, like this young man, has failed to meet God's standard of perfection. We've all broken his law, and he, the righteous judge, must punish us for our sins. And what's worse is there's absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves or earn forgiveness from God. Absolutely nothing we can do. But praise God, that's not where Jesus leaves off. Because he tells his disciples, this is impossible with man, but not with God. Because all things are possible with God. God has made a way. God makes the impossible possible. You see, he sent his son to be born as a human, to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die on a cross. And you know what? He died in our place. He took on the full wrath of God for us. God then raised him from the dead, giving him victory over sin and death. So yes, there's nothing a sinner can do regardless of their station in life, regardless of how much they make, regardless of how much good they think they've done. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if you repent of your sins, you turn away from trusting in anything else or anyone else and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Savior and bow your knee to King Jesus, then you will be saved. You will inherit the eternal life that the rich young ruler walked away from. Let us pray.